You're listening to The Real Well Show with Kathy Fetke, the real estate investor's resource. Have you ever been to a real estate networking event where people are bragging about how many doors they have? Sometimes they say they have a thousand or two thousand doors. And I often wonder, do you mean you're invested in syndications and you own a small share of all those doors? Or do you really own a thousand or two thousand doors on your own? And you know what? Who really cares? What I care about is what those doors mean to you. Are you getting passive income? Are you living life on your own terms as a result of it? Are you building wealth for the future? How much equity are you gaining from this? I'm Kathy Fetke, and welcome to The Real Wealth Show. Our guest today is proof that you don't have to own 5,000 doors to be a successful real estate investor. Vince Rodriguez says he mostly dabbles in duplexes in California and is now furnishing them for the midterm space, which happens to produce more cash flow, which is absolutely necessary to have more cash flow if you're investing in California, especially in Orange County where prices are so high. So let's find out how he's doing it. Vince, welcome to The Real Well Show. Hey, thank you so much for having uh, me, Kathy. Big fan of your show. Thank you. It was fun to see you at the uh, Limitless Expo in, in Scottsdale and find out that you're an excellent dancer. And how many guests have you danced with? Am I the first one? You might be the first one. Yeah, and this definitely the best one. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Any anyone who will swing dance with me is is just just that's my favorite. Right. So, yeah. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about how you're handling your rental portfolio during these very interesting and uncertain times. What's what's going on with you? Yeah, so uh I live in Orange County just to the south of you in California as well, and I got in around 20 uh, 2018. And, you know, uh, to uh, a lot of your uh, credit, because uh, you and uh, Bigger Pockets is one of the main podcasts that I used to listen to. And I, I learned a lot of the uh, things uh, from you guys. So that was uh, thank you for that. And that's why it's kind of like a, a big circle for me to actually come on the podcast. So that's kind of cool. Oh, um, fun. <laughs> yeah. So I'm actually transitioning from a uh, long term uh, rents uh, in California to more uh, midterm and short term. That's that's uh, my main focus right now. And that's what uh, I've been doing. Basically, yeah. So take uh, so you do, have you had rentals in California? Is that or yeah, where my rentals are yeah. in California? Actually, I started in oh. uh, Bakersfield. Uh, California, because that's what I can afford. Started with, uh, you know, a $250,000 triplex, uh, still in the single family zone, one to four units, right? And then slowly I was accumulating a portfolio. Um, and, you know, the the, the big uh, decision for me came and, you know, and you guys started uh, on the market and stuff. I started seeing like the writing on the wall where you were talking about, hey, you know, the feds are going to be raising rates, inflation's high, you might want to get out of all of your non-cash flowing assets and, you know, get out of the high. So I actually cashed out on almost all of my uh, properties in Bakersfield and I sold for a huge profit and I started buying in more B and A neighborhoods, which has been doing pretty good for me. Oh, that's amazing. It's nice to know that someone's out there listening. <laughs> oh yeah. I make huge million dollar decisions based on what you say. Oh, no, I love it. Okay, well, so when and how did you get a $250,000 triplex in Bakersfield? That must have been a long time ago. Well, it was actually only five years ago. So it was 2018, July. That was my first property I bought after I read, uh, six months after I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Uh, it was cool. We were able to hang out with Robert 
uh, in Limitless. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, so I got that property, put down, I don't know, $40,000 down or something. And then uh, it, everything went bad on that property. You know, every, you know, like nobody was paying, they were cooking meth, you know, all kinds of crap was going on. But I held on to it for four years and I sold it for a $200,000 profit uh, last year. So that was good. That was like the height of uh, the market. I sold it in May of 2022. Yeah. Well, I I suppose if they're successful meth uh, (laughs) dealers, then they'll pay the rent, right? (laughs) No, I kicked them out. Uh, I actually put a a, a cop in the middle unit and they all disappeared the next day. So. Oh, wow. Oh, very good. Okay. And you made a $400,000 profit? No, I bought it for two fifty. I sold it for around four fifty, four sixty. So I made okay. two hundred thousand dollar profit. Yeah, yeah, so fantastic, and in a very short period of time. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, if you look at it, did you put money down on that? Yeah, so I put. I would say I put uh, maybe I don't know uh, thirty, forty thousand dollars down, and then a lot of repairs. So even let's say you know I spent hundred thousand dollars on the property. Um, uh, I was able to get a, a $200,000 out of it in four years and not including any rents I made. And yeah, that's, that's the mistake I see a lot of people making is thinking, okay, so you, you paid 250, it appreciated to 400, you made $150,000, but if you financed, mm-hmm. then you made a lot more than, yeah. you know, 50% return. You, you did a 200% return or more. Yeah. Uh, People just sometimes forget that, that it's the cash on cash return, the cash that you put into the deal versus how much you're getting out. So if you put in, if you bought a property with 20% down, let's say it's a $200,000 property. And so that's $40,000 that you put into it and it just went up 5%. That's what, you know, what is that? 20, 25%. Yeah. Yeah. So that's just on a 5% appreciation rate, which we're getting right now today in Tampa and Dallas and a lot of the markets we're in. So good for you. All right. So you sold probably at the peak, although it seems like we're back and we're back into a multiple offer environment again in so many markets. But where did you take the money? So I went from uh, Bakersfield and I started buying in Inland Empire. You know the area very well, San Bernardino County, like Redlands and Island, mm-hmm. Desert Hot Springs, all that area. So I bought like, I don't know, like five properties, maybe 10 units there. And then I last year I started buying in Orange County, which is where I live. Okay. Yeah. So you're all still in California. I'm all still in California. I just, um, uh, we will be closing on our first duplex in Hendersonville, just north of Nashville, Tennessee, on uh, this week, so on Friday. So that'll be our first property out of state. And we are going to be going to more red states now. I'll, I'll still keep my California properties, which is breaking even or making some money because of the appreciation game. But I will be buying future properties in Tennessee. Why Tennessee? Um, uh, I do. Uh, like you guys, you know, I follow a lot of the stuff you guys say. Red states, southeast. My sister lives in Georgia, so it's pretty close. So I want to move uh, some money into the red states where it's easier to, you know, move out people. I actually just came back from an eviction with the sheriff. Uh, somebody didn't pay for like nine months and finally she was out. But, you know, it takes so long. You know, if I don't have the means, if I don't have my W2 job to support this kind of stuff in California, I mean, I will be losing properties left, right and center. So it took you nine months to evict someone in California? Yeah. And that was one of them. The, uh, the other one took me a year. Oh, but you're yeah. still investing here. Um, yeah, so I don't do the uh, C and C minus neighborhoods anymore. So it's only I only hold yeah. 
right now, B, B plus and A neighborhoods in California now. Okay. And how do you make the numbers work on A and B class properties in California? That's, that's harder to do. Yeah. So what happens now is, Kathy, as you know, the long-term rents is not enough for us to come close to 1% rule, you know, so that's challenging. So what we've decided to do was we pivoted towards like a more furnished rentals. So, uh, you know, we buy even like the ones we bought in like um, Placentia, which is Orange County recently, you know, it's a $900,000 property, uh, but the mortgage is, let's say, 5500 or something like that. But once you furnish it and rent it to like midterm uh, uh, tenants, you can actually get very close, um, not quite, but close to the 1% mark even in California in Orange County, which is like really, really good. So then, you know, you can hedge yourself against any downturn in terms of, you know, you always want to have a positive cash flow situation because that's how people lose properties. Um, I was just, I just had uh, Christina, you know, Christina Suter. Yeah. On my podcast. And we were talking about how she lost all of her stuff during the 2008 because a lot of her property didn't cash flow. So, mm-hmm. you know, so I'm very thankful that I can learn from, um, you know, guys like you and, you know, make uh, <laughs> more, more solid decisions. Yeah. Well, I'm glad I'm not all uh, uh, alone in that because I have a lot of respect for Christina and yeah. we had the same thing. We, we were, a lot of Californians at the time were, were investing for the appreciation. And usually it meant negative cash flow. Yeah. You just kind of fed your properties. That's what you did. You had to pay to have them. But the flip side would be hopefully you timed it well and you made hundreds of thousands of dollars on the back end. But if you didn't, then you're stuck with no equity and you know negative cash flow, which is where we were also in 2008. It was a very difficult time. Plus most of those properties we, we bought with no money down. So <laughs> when prices go down, there's no equity. Uh, those were the days. Okay. So uh, what are some of the lessons that you've learned over the last five years that you've been investing? Well, the lessons that I've learned is, you know, um, I come from an engineering background and I still work for a medical device company, you know. So I had all this, my uh, my personality and my like ego tied up to thinking I'm so smart because I'm an engineer, got my master's, all that stuff. And then I did all this math to get into properties and I totally forgot about the people aspect of real estate where, you know, when somebody doesn't pay you rent, all of your math is garbage, right? Does it make sense? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, oh, wait, I did all this math. What's happening? Like, why is people? Why, people- why is my spreadsheet not working? <laughs> yeah. This is what's going on. So I realized that, you know, you got to get into nicer neighborhoods, even if you don't um, uh, make quite a lot of sense in terms of cash flow. So that that's, you know, it's very interesting because I know I keep bringing up your show, but this is the one of the most important things that I learned from your show is people always calculate cash flow based on year one. And that's how I did it, right? And you came on one show and you said, you are a moron if you do that because, you know, <laughs> rents go up. I hope I didn't say that. but <laughs> that's, how, that's how I took it. Uh, uh, and then, you know, but, you know, rents go up 5%, 10% a year. Even in California with rent control, you can still do 10% a year. But then your everything is fixed. So then you really start seeing your benefits in year two, three, four, five, right? By five yeah. years, it's almost impossible not to cash flow if you hold on to it for five years, right? So that's some like some things that I learned that I changed my model from just looking up cash flow and D or C minus neighborhoods, going after that market. Because if you really do the numbers, they don't really cash flow more than B or A. You will always cash flow more in the long term in, with the equity back end. I, I agree so much with that. And and we've done it all. We've gone into neighborhoods that 
you learn very quickly. Uh, you better be very comfortable in those neighborhoods and you better have plenty of reserves because in certain neighborhoods it's unsafe and people don't want to stay or they they just rent for a few months and lose their jobs and they take everything with them when they leave, including sometimes the toilets and, and uh, you know, the appliances They take whatever they can. Uh, we've been, we've been through that. And in fact, we had our single family rental fund where we got to really play it out buying brand new, really nice properties in Florida that didn't cash flow very well. And then uh, Detroit, you know, offsetting it with Detroit, which is what we would tell people to do, get the cash flow and the appreciation properties. So the Detroit properties did cash flow really well. But at the end of five years, when we sold off the portfolio and we added it all up to see, you know, how we did, those Florida properties ended up being about 28% annualized returns while the Detroit properties were like six, if, if we were lucky. Um, in some cases, we lost money because when you sell and the property hasn't gone up in value, you still have to fix stuff to be able to sell it, mm -hmm. especially to an investor. And usually an investor is the only one buying in those lower end neighborhoods. So anyway, big lessons learned. I like new, I like nice. And that's why I like some of these tertiary markets where you can still buy A-class properties and they, they somewhat cash flow. Yeah. I mean, that that's a very similar strategy. I mean, I learned from you guys. So that's what I kind of try to do. <laughs> I want to, I don't want to negatively cash flow because that's not something I want to do because then I'm paying for people to live in my, you know, properties. Uh, but you know, me and my buddy Drew, we own the a company together. We both make six figures. So we're able to play this long game where we were in it for five years, you know, paying, spending on the properties. But then the equity helped us, you know, turn a huge profit. So we were able to buy into newer, nicer neighborhoods. That's it. That's it. Have a job and buy real estate, buy and hold, hold it for later when you don't want to be working. But, you know, so many people, there's the whole FI movement going, you know, financial independence now, basically, which is great. You know, if you can live on $30,000, you know, a year or whatever, like some of these people who are, are young and fi, you know, basically retri retired at 30, but living a college lifestyle because, you know, um, they, they had to get low, you know, lower priced properties to make it that work. So, all right. How did you, I, I know, I know you had said earlier that you went, you went from long-term rental to medium term. So tell me about that. I have not done that yet, but I'm very intrigued by it. Yeah. You, you're trying to do that with your Malibu properties, right? You do the some short term and medium term, right? Mostly short, all short term. Oh, mostly short term. Okay, cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what happened was, I don't know if you know of these uh, girls, Sarah Weaver and... Uh, of course. Yeah. I, was, I wrote the foreword. <laughs> oh yeah. That's <laughs> of right. her book. Yeah. Oh yeah. So, so anyway, so I had her on my podcast, uh, Sarah, and you know, and she kind of introduced me into this midterm space and i was like i think we could totally do this and you know uh, cash flow a lot so she really like opened my eyes on it and you know she only has uh i think like a dozen properties or so and she's kind of like retired she's traveling the world and i'm looking at myself looking at i have 40 houses in california and i'm like dying like i i can't make anything happen you know i'm still working a full-time job so then that started me on the path of you know i don't want to do long-term rents anymore and I want to always buy a uh, midterm, which seems like a nice spread between short term, which has a lot of heavy, uh, you know, management and then, you know, long term, which is almost less management. So midterm is like the, the perfect one I found that I like. And there's not a lot of uh, regulations against it so far. So 
I'm converting most of my properties into midterm if I can. And I let the long-term stay because, you know, like you said, like your two, three, four starts cash flowing. So I'm fine with those. But uh, new properties, I want to buy midterm, yeah. Yeah, that book is called 30 Day Stay. I do recommend it. They kind of go into the details of how uh, how it works. So good for you. Good for you. Okay, well, what's next for you then? Well, what's next for me is uh, I want to expand more. I want to get into more on the south, southeastern states, uh, uh, buy more properties. I also um, uh, raise capital, but it's I, I don't really raise capital like a syndication or anything. So I'm just doing tenants in common with JV agreements with like my mom, my sister, uh, my buddy's mom, and very close friends and family. Uh, but we've raised over a million, million and a quarter so far. So we want to continue doing that. We have our meetups and, you know, educate people on how to, because I like, I like like a group think kind of stuff. I want everybody to kind of win. So I like to partner with people and we all own stuff together. So it's kind of more fun. So that's what I like to do. So how do you structure those JV deals or the TICs? And that's tenants in common for anyone unfamiliar with that. Yeah. So this is super actually, uh, uh, because I'm like a super nerd. You probably know Mark Kohler, right? Um, of course. Love Mark. Yeah. Yeah. I, I work with, so Mark's my attorney, his company, like Lee, I don't know if you know Lee Chen too. He's local Irvine guy. And so mm-hmm. he uh, structures all my deals uh, or all the LLCs I have. So I nerd out a lot. So I figured out how to do the, the least amount of accounting and least amount of LLCs and stuff like that to partner with people. So what I found out with like every little property we buy, if you do like a partnership on it, then have an LLC for every property, it costs a lot of money and you don't really, you actually, you know, it, is, it doesn't make sense to do that. So what I do is I will go in and buy the property with two different entities. So for example, let's say Kathy Fedke LLC, and then let's say uh, Vince Capital LLC, right? So then those both of them will have 50% ownership. When you structure deals like that, you don't have to have a partnership return. So you can just uh, do your own returns and, you know, file your own. But then all of my LLCs, I have a few LLCs floating around, one in Tennessee, a couple in California and stuff. They're all owned by one partnership LLC in Wyoming. And that's the only one that files at 1065. So it makes accounting very simple because everything else is disregarded. So then the, and I send out statements to the people who partner with me. So I don't know if you that um, uh, people are able to follow that, but that's how I do it. Yeah, no, it's it's fascinating. I mean, I, we haven't spent enough time talking about how you can raise money from other people who don't want to do the work or don't have the experience and mm-hmm. and do a JV partnership like that. It's it's a wonderful way to go. So yeah. I, I appreciate that advice, and I'll um, I'm trying to do that on some of our park city properties, because we have this great opportunity to uh, buy lots there, build homes. And there's enough equity there that if you spent $400,000 on a lot, the equity gain from building the house within that year is about 400,000. So you kind of get your money back in a year so you can refi and, and get it out. And I, I, I would love to do something like that with, with several other partners and and build some really cool houses that we either keep as short-term rentals or medium-term rentals or as vaca- shared vacation homes. Uh, it's a beautiful place. So I will be hitting you up to find out about your JV agreements. Wonderful. Yeah, I'll, I'll just send it to you. Lee wrote it to me. I'll just give it to you. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much. All right. Well, again, I, I we need to wrap up, but what would you say is the biggest thing you learned from that Limitless Expo? There were a lot of Great speakers, a lot of investors. What, what did you come out 
uh, besides meeting Robert Kiyosaki. And oh, yeah, Kim Kiyosaki right. was there too. Oh yeah, I didn't meet Kim, but I, I did meet Robert. I met Chris Mortensen, all of the cool guys. The the uh, the radio, what are those guys? Oh, the real estate guys, and oh yeah, all yeah. those yeah. guys. Uh, mm-hmm. But I would say the most uh, important thing is, uh, you know, I, I I have an engineering background. I'm always about systems, structures, numbers, analytics, and all that stuff. But you know, once you you definitely need to know it, otherwise you can't do deals. But even with that background, I would say that's probably I don't know, 10% of my strengths, even though that's like my main focus. What I do tend to realize from going to these uh, conferences is um, I get opportunity to talk with you or Rich or Brandon, right? It's like, there is no way I'll have the opportunity to talk to you guys. And then once you constantly talk to people who are in that area, that market, you just you just start developing different types of you know brain cells, I think. And then you start thinking differently. You want to you understand how the monetary policy works, how the feds work, how the printing works. It's crazy how it works. It's like nobody taught me all of those things, right? So that's what I would say is the takeaway. It's like because if you keep spending time about, you know, watching football for 40 hours a week, you know, you're going to be great at watching football, but that's not going to make you or your family really rich, right? So I actively try to spend time with people who are doing greater things than us, right? So then it's like that's that's what I learned from Limitless. That is such great advice and really what changed my life early on mm-hmm. when I started the Real Wealth Show and started, you know, had a platform where I could get people like Robert Kiyosaki to talk to me um, in an interview because I was on a major San Francisco network. Uh, it was such a shock just hearing the difference in the way wealthy people think. Uh, we all have preconceived notions about how, how wealthy people think and how they are and what they're like. Oftentimes it's negative because we just don't know. I mean, if you're a regular person, you don't know wealthy people generally. If you're hanging around people in your neighborhood or, or where you come from or whatever. So I, I didn't certainly know any millionaires. So when I started to hang out with them and it, you're right, it changes your brain. It's like a, it's like a, chiropractic adjustment to your mind (laughs) when you're around people. And it would, the more I immersed myself in that environment, the more I became it. And I found that, that these people, of course, there's all kinds of people in the world, but in the groups that I gravitated to, I found that wealthy people were generous, generous with their time, with their money, with their ideas, with their support. Uh, I mean, so many of the people we know give tremendously to charity. So anyway, couldn't agree more. Go to events, mingle, learn from people, listen to podcasts, and uh, watch your brain explode. (laughs) All right. In a good way. Okay, Vince, thank you so much for joining me here on The Real Well Show. Can't wait to see you again, hopefully at our upcoming Real Wealth 20-year anniversary event that we're holding in October. Uh, that is, you can find out details about that at realwealth.com. Just go to the, I think it's the learn tab and there'll be an events section. And, uh, we're going to have a 20 year anniversary event and party and cocktail party. It's going to be awesome. I think you're going to be there and we are going to do another dance. Let's do it. Yeah. I already got two tickets. I'll be there. Awesome. Okay. I will see you there. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Kathy. And thank you all for joining me. I hope to see you there in October. It's actually my birthday the next day on the 8th. So we're just going to have a big party all weekend. Plus, we've got uh, 10 different property teams coming in to tell us what's going on in their markets. So you get to meet them and it's great. So again, that's realwealthshow.com. Just click on the Learn tab. We'll see you next time. 
The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to realwealthshow.com.